This is Women's Leadership Success Radio, episode number 66. Do you have mental constraints holding you back in business and life? Well, if you do, you're not alone. This is the single biggest obstacle for women who want to excel in their leadership and their careers. And yet some women excel in spite of huge obstacles. Listen to this interview with a woman with grit and granite willpower who overcame great odds. She is a software engineer, entrepreneur, speaker, author, and a champion athlete. She will be representing the United States in the 2016 Paralympics in Rio de Janeiro. Join us now to hear how you can overcome your constraints, achieve your goals, and increase your potential. When you hear her disability, you will be blown away and very inspired. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life, no matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur. Join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio with Sabrina Brahm. Today we're talking to Patricia Walsh. Welcome, Patricia. Hello, Sabrina. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here today. Thank you. Uh, In the setup for this show, I share some amazing accomplishments you've uh, achieved in academics, career, business, and world-class athletics. Are people blown away when they find out that you're blind? Yes, that is a pretty common reaction. And I think particularly with the people who I work the closest with, I think they, generally speaking, forget uh, that I'm blind. And, you know, it'll often come up in a whiteboard conversation where people ask me, you know, if this works for me. And I always tell them, like, do whatever works for you and I'll find my own adaption. (laughs) So I think... I think it does catch people off guard, and I think they often don't know how to handle it. Um, But one of my real driving forces right now is to kind of set an example of someone who is successful with a disability, you know, to serve um, kind of as someone who who could perhaps change the stereotype a little bit. Um, So I'm very pleased to to, uh, be providing some exposure to people who may otherwise have never had opportunity to work with someone with a disability. Beautiful. Tell us a little bit of, of, about your story, about your background. Um, I lost my vision in 1986 uh, due to a pediatric brain tumor. I um, later went on uh, to go to university for where I got my degree in electrical engineering and computer science. Um, that was sort of against the odds. You know, at the time, everyone was really encouraging me to go into humanities, which is what they thought was a degree a blind person could do and really making a decision based on your limitation. Um, and I initially did start on that track. I started with a degree in history and elementary education, but I had a real realization pretty early on that um, I had no interest in any career that mapped to that degree. So um, I decided to kind of take a leap of faith and I decided to pursue computer science, um, which of course was an uphill battle. It did not go well at first, but eventually kind of learned some um, adaptive skills such that I could be a success and a lot of that was really learning uh, to ask for help, learning to advocate for myself, learning what technology I needed. Um, once I was able to really kind of turn that table and get some support, some help and some technology, um, 
through some small incremental victories, I was able to cultivate some confidence in my own abilities and uh, ended up uh, doing very well in electrical engineering and computer science. I was then offered a job at Microsoft, which I was thrilled to accept. Worked at Microsoft for seven and a half years um, and have gone on to do lots of other things in engineering. Uh, most recently worked for a wonderful company called Mozito uh, that does mobile applications and financial services. So at Mozito, I was advisor to joint ventures. So I would get these really incredibly um, exciting opportunities. They would come to me and my problem statement might be, you know, help us figure out how to make Nigerian universities cashless. You know, so these really really changing the way that people interact with money and the way that they interact with, um, you know, trust in technology and, and really changing uh, the world and developing countries, which, you know, it's, that's the real exciting thing about being an engineer is the level of impact you could have to actually change the way that people, um, you know, interact with the world around them. Beautiful. Beautiful. I, I You say in, in your book, Blind Ambition, that – Every everyone struggles with blindness. Can you tell us a little bit about what you meant there? Sure. Um, what I really mean by that is that you know we all, uh, none of us can see the future, of course, and I think that we all are sort of fed information about our limitations, you know, and, and really the, the the limiting factor in being blind for me had nothing to do with not seeing things. And had everything to do with how people perceived me and what they they always assumed the least of me. And when I really speak to the fact that we all struggle with blindness, I'm really speaking to the fact that we all have these perceived limitations that, mm-hmm. you know, if you choose to acknowledge them, they can limit you. Not being able to see things has never been the problem. Proving to other people that I'm competent is the problem because they assume that it's a miraculous occurrence that I can cross the street by myself and they assume that it's it, um, unbelievable that I can live alone and that uh, I'm the one responsible for the bills and I'm the, I'm the breadwinner of my situation. And overcoming that, um, you know, I had an experience when I was first at Microsoft where, first of all, when I was hired, they did not know I was blind when I was hired. Um, so some backlash I've received in, in historic, historic truth is um, people at one point assumed it was an affirmative action hire, and that always really undermined the level of work and dedication that I felt like I put on the table. So I'm always very proud of the fact that they didn't know that. Um, but once they did figure it out, they started giving me features that were lesser than. So really in software, you know, or in any, really in any industry, if you want to advance, you have to be taking on a, a greater scope of influence, greater responsibilities. Well, I was getting all of the leftover responsibilities, the safe responsibilities, and I really had to have kind of a come-to-Jesus meeting with my higher-ups to tell them that I need to be given equal treatment, and that means opportunity to succeed and opportunity to excel. And I'm I'm not – I didn't just put myself through college in order to, you know, hang on. I want to excel. I want to be a leader here um, regardless of uh, my situation. So um, – when I really speak to how we are all uh, struggling with blindness, what I'm speaking to is the fact that we all have perceived limitations, that we have to make a choice of how we're going to deal with those. And um, I hear it all the time when I have, you know, I used to, for a very brief period, I taught math. And um, I had students that would come up to me and say, well, I'll never be able to do this. I'm not a math person. Well, that's a perceived limitation. You can do math if you practice math. So in that situation, that's the blindness that they're they're facing is that perceived limitation that you can choose to honor or you can choose to chip away at it until you have some command of that situation. Yeah, and I, I I 
I agree with you, and I I think so many of the limitation, perceived limitations are put on us by the people around us. Um, Absolutely. I, I was raised in a family that did not expect that I would ever do good in school. I was mm-hmm. just, I was, you know, wasn't expected to get any kind of good grades or ever do anything. And overcoming that I was smart enough to do that was my blindness. And yeah. um, how do you how do you deal with the naysayers? What do you and how well, can women that are listening to this pro- program deal with people that are saying that they can't do something? My my answer to that is initially twofold. I from my own experience, and it's you know it doesn't necessarily make it easier. But the truth of the matter, from my experience, is that the, most of the naysayers wanted the best for me, and that is kind of a double-edged sword because they're holding you back, and they are operating with the best of intentions. So they're holding you back and expressing, expecting you to thank them for it, <laughs> you know. But they mean well, and they're trying to protect you from pain of failure. Um, so one thing I would say, you know, off the bat is remembering intent. No one, no one wakes up in the morning saying, I'm going to cut someone else's dreams down today. It's just not how they operate. Uh-huh. But they might, with the best of intentions, accidentally, um, you know, with the spirit of being protective, actually be cutting you down. So I would say always be gracious with those people, but try to practice, practice, practice every day, dismissing them and really being, you know, you are the own judge of your own potential and you are the own judge of your limitations and you're the own, own judge of your own capabilities. And no one else can determine for you what you're capable of. And I think for me, I always have to, and it happens even still daily where someone will make me question something. And I have to remind myself that this person doesn't know me better than I know me. And that they might be operating with the best of intentions. And they may, they may even have a lot of experience. But that doesn't mean they know more than I know about what I'm capable of. And really just having that moment of not necessarily trying to change their opinion, but just trying to keep your opinion on track of your opinion of your own capabilities and influencing others in this, in that type of situation isn't really going to advance you, but just making sure that you remain uninfluenced is what's going to advance you. So I would say kind of make sure you remember that that is within your control as your perception of yourself is within your control. That's and beautiful. Say again. Oh, I, thank you. I, I, the story of John Gardner, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about him and, and how he impacted your career. And your yeah, your school. Dr. Gardner was a was a remarkably influential person in my life, and I think so. His story is he was a physics professor, and um, I believe semi-solid physics, uh, pretty renowned professor, um, very well respected uh, in his industry, particularly at Oregon State University. And he lost his vision, I believe, in the late '80s. So by the time I met him, I met him in 2000. So he'd been losing his vision and blind for uh, at least a decade at that point. So he really took it on um, with uh, tremendous power. I think initially when he lost his vision, I think as we all do when we're struggling with losing a sense, I think there was some depression and some uncertainty about how to proceed. But he eventually decided that he was in a perfect position to figure out how to make math and science education more accessible to the blind. And he really did some remarkable things. So when I met him, I was blind myself, um, going to college against uh, the wishes of some of my family and some of the professionals. So I was kind of on my own on that. And also really just, just learning how to use technology and just learning how to advocate for myself. So I was, because I was paying for school myself, I was working full time 
and also um, taking about 18 credits, uh, really overloaded. And that's a lot for a student without blindness, more or less a student who's just learning technology. So mm-hmm. when I met Dr. Gardner, um, I walked in his office. I was very excited. It was the first person with blindness I'd never met who really was successful and well-respected. So it really gave me kind of a renewed hope for my own future. Um, I, I cannot uh, – value enough having a good role model. I think we all need to have someone we look up to, but John Gardner really was it for me. And he, you know, was so well-respected in science and education and just revered and and remarkably intelligent and driven Mm -hmm. and a lot of support from his family, of course. So I actually, at the time, really, you know, I really wanted to be a part of what he was doing. He was doing research on how to make science and math more accessible uh, previously to going blind. I had been in advanced placement math classes. Um, I'd taken all my high school math by the 7th and 8th grade. Um, and uh, once I lost my vision, I thought that was over. So for me, it was just the, you know, this hope beyond hope that I might one day be able to pursue the things I had honestly been interested in rather than just picking my future based on my limitation. And, um, you know, he was just a force to be reckoned with. That being said, I didn't really have the skills to help. So I really oversold my skills. Um, I did not really know about technology or using email and uh, I ended up doing his technology support. So I really dove in the deep end there and really had to learn uh, trial trial and error how to keep up in technology. And I, I'm so thankful I did because, you know, going in the deep end was the right way to go because uh, I really forced me to catch up. So I ended up having to take a year off of university just to kind of build up my, my skills, my, you know, advocacy skills and my technology skills particularly because technology is just a lifesaver particularly for those of us with disabilities really does level the playing field and you know Dr. Gardner was influential in first of all getting me the right technology you know second of all teaching me the university system and what resources I had I was trying to do university without accessible textbooks you know Um, so he really taught me the university system but but above all else he really gave me a support and he really gave me a guiding light and a belief that there is better out there for me and that I shouldn't be um, selecting my future based on something I think I can't do. And uh, it was, you know, in hindsight, I'm, I'm, I will be grateful for his contribution and the example he set every day. You know, it was really remarkable and certainly good timing for me. Beautiful. And something that you talk about in your book, you you mentioned that when you first went uh went totally blind when I think you were 14. That's correct. You, you were depressed. You, you did drugs and smoked cigarettes and you were, you just were not, you were not doing well. And, but then when you talk about this thing with John Gardner and here you are, you can't, you don't even know how to do the things that you said you could do. And you just go, yeah, I can do it. And then you just work your, buns off to figure out how to do it what gave you that what what changed in you that gave you the courage to go ahead and try something where you could fail but to really put some effort into it i think it's something that a lot of us as women sometimes we hold back because you know we don't feel have the confidence so what gave you the confidence to try it what shifted for you well there was a there was a lot of things that shifted kind of all at once, and I'll I'll do my best to kind of give you a full scope of what was going on. Um, first and foremost is my dad started having a lot of health problems. Um, you know, he was having strokes, issues with his heart, lots of you know emergency type situations, and I really realized that particularly with my smoking habit, 
my dad doesn't drink or anything, but particularly with my smoking habit, I was really on the same track as he was. So I kind of started to have that realization that, that the choices I'm making can only send me in that same direction. At the same time as everyone has been so discouraging of me going to university and everyone told me very outright that that would be an exercise in failure and then I would be better off just applying for social security and finding some family member I could live with. And unfortunately, because I didn't have the right skills and technology and also was working full-time, we'll take a full-time load, I actually was really on the brink of failure at Oregon State University. And I was struggling to pay my bills, struggling to get my grades, didn't have accessible textbooks, just set up for a failure. And you didn't even and have think, financial scholarship. I had, no. I actually had to give up my financial scholarship due to a, a, a mistake my parents had made in a financial uh, FAFSA form or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, it was just, I just felt like I was being thwarted at every turn. And I was really on the brink of failure. And when I found Gardner, I think it was kind of a lifeline. And I really, I knew that I wasn't prepared, but I kind of saw this as being like, if I'm ever going to have a chance to be successful, it's going to be hooking onto this guy. And he knows, he's got his thumb on something I don't have. I need to learn from him. And I remembered you know, previously to losing my vision, I felt invincible. You know, I was a, a very uh, hardworking student. You know, I have reasonable intellect. I was really getting through these advanced placement classes at a very young age, you know, really on track to graduate high school at 16. And then all of a sudden, in losing my vision, it was all over. You know, and I my first year when I lost my vision, I went and lived at a school for the blind in Washington State. And I remember that they took us on a career day. And it really stuck out in my mind and in my memory because it, there was one blind woman and she had literally no responsibilities. She was kind of a token and, you know, no disrespect to her because she was working with what she had to work with. And she was working as like a receptionist assistant where she would answer phones and then dictate it to the receptionist. So she really had no responsibility on her own. And she only worked two hours a day. And, and I remember being there and being 14 or 15 and saying, like, God, that is not my life. Like, that's not what I want for myself. I had, you know, aspirations of doing these, you know, big kind of more engineering scientific type endeavors. And um, at the age of 14, having that feeling that that's what, what I was going to be, excuse me, reduced to. I don't want to be respect, disrespectful to her, but that's certainly how I felt. Mm-hmm. You know, that really was a very stinking feeling. And I gave up hope. And then meeting Gardner kind of renewed that sense of hope and I figured out that you know this is kind of my last my last stab at this otherwise I'm you know if I continue on the track I'm going on I'm just going to prove everyone right you know this mm-hmm. is just going to be an exercise of failure if I keep going the way I'm going and I was working very hard to fail miserably <laughs> you know it was not pretty and and um but I didn't have what I needed to be successful so you know I, I kind of figured out this was my I was right at the brink of failure and I figured I better better you know try every tool in the toolbox. And how so. did you do You're a very successful athlete and you know, you've done a uh Ironman and and won yeah. all kinds of things and I remember <laughs> in the book where you said you wondered if you could run. Yeah, it was a pretty big turnaround for me. Right at the same time that my dad started having health problems, um I uh started to run and there there was a concrete trail near my house in Corvallis, Oregon and um you know, right as my dad started really struggling with his health, I decided to go for a run, and I had no idea what I was doing, didn't have running clothes, didn't have a pair, of, had never run, really, and um, 
I decided to go try it out, and I just ran with my foot on the edge. And everyone thinks I can see the edge, but I, it's really just tracking the, the difference between the, the feel of the gravel versus the feel of the concrete, so I can feel the, the level. Um, the first time I ran a mile, I was, you know, so ecstatic that, uh, you know, I had fallen and I had hit a few things with my head, but no major bruises or injuries. And I'm honestly, to this day, more proud of that first attempt than I am of anything, you know, it's on, I, little did I know at the time, it was just starting this ripple effect of well, greater, um, athletic accomplishments and never in a million years that I imagine I'd be a professional athlete, um, or on that track or Paralympic athlete, um. And now that's, you know, my full-time endeavor. Um, so, yeah, running that first mile, that was life-changing. And then from there, I started uh, setting myself up with what I call incremental goals or incremental victories where, you know, initially I ran one mile and then one day I ran eight miles and, you know, ever increasing got to, you know, when I ran my first half marathon, I, I was a Boston qualifying half marathon and um, kind of gave me the first feeling that I could actually be capable and competent as a runner, you know, and they have a separate standard for the visually impaired, um, but I actually qualified by the sighted standard. Um, so it was so refreshing to me to feel like I was capable and like I had some impact and influence over what I was capable of doing. And I went on to run 12 marathons. Um, I think my best marathon was about 320. So it's, it's a, um, you know, not Olympic time, but it's a, a good time. Um, by my age group, by by any standard, and then um, went on to I did an Ironman um, based on a dare. You know, at that point when I started running, it really was proving that I was capable and proving to myself, not proving to anyone else, but proving to myself that I was capable. And then with each incremental victory, I felt, you know, like I was less and less proving myself and more just feeling like I was starting to own my ability to be successful. And then with the Ironman, it really was more of a appetite for what's possible you know I felt like I've really kind of put that proving myself behind me and now it's more of this really exciting exploration of of what's possible what's this what I call in the book upward trajectory and you know where a few years ago not that long ago I was just clinging to survival and now I feel like I'm really exploring that the upward limit of you know what what I can do with work ethic and strategy and and um you know, with a few successes under my belt. So my success in my first Ironman was very exciting. Uh, that kind of planted the seed for my second Ironman, where I broke the world record for fastest blind and low vision Ironman distance athletes, um, which wow. got me on the radar. That then put me on the radar for United States Association of Triathlon, where I was recruited to the U.S. national team. Um, I am a four-time national champion. I have won the Pan American or PATCO. It's not really Pan American, but PATCO, I don't know what it stands for. Um, that's the Western Hemisphere. Um, I've won that twice. I've won uh, two bronze medals at World Championship and, um, you know, Athlete of the Year for 2012. So I'm very, you know, excited to have the potential to represent my country in uh, 2016 Paralympics, and that's now what I focus on full-time. Wow. Well, I'm sure that a, a lot of the people listening are going to be fans and wanting to watch that show and and see you win some gold medals there. Well, I, gosh, I hope and pray every day. <laughs> and athletics is such a different thing because athletics, it all comes down to one moment in time, you know. That's true. <laughs> you know, but one of the things that struck me was the incremental goals. And you have a, a interesting way of goal setting. I've, you know, there's some things that are everybody 
has probably heard, but can you tell us your system of goal setting and that, that how that's helped you achieve the goals you've you've uh, accomplished? Absolutely. So my system, you know, really came as an answer to some of the questions that people ask me. I do a lot of public speaking, and, and every audience, no matter how old or young or accomplished, I mean, elementary school kids, CEOs, they were all asking me, how do you maintain drive? Like, how do you stick with it? And particularly with the athletics, because the secret of athletics is that they're very, very boring when you're doing the same thing every day. And um, it's really hard to remember why you're doing it. Uh Um, So my system for goal achievement, I call it in the book, Fuel Fire Blaze, that top level, and it really can apply to anything, um, and organizations as well. That top level is why are you doing what you're doing? What is the emotional intrinsic motivation? You know, what exactly, what change in your industry are you trying to see? For me, I care very deeply about setting an example of a person with disabilities who is successful by any standard. And the example I'll use for the purpose of this conversation is I care very deeply to be an athlete with a disability who's on par with elite able-bodied athletes. That's something I care about all day, every day, There's never going to be a moment in time where I don't care about that. So what I do with that information is I map that to the milestones, which is what I call the fire. So for me to set an example of an elite able-bodied athlete athlete with a disability who's on par, I need to have a good representation to the United States at the 2015 World Championship. And then, of course, I certainly would love to have a gold medal for the United States in 2016, but really with times that are on par with elite able-bodied sighted athletes. To make that happen is the fuel, and that's the day-to-day. So I map my day-to-day workouts to the milestones. So my swim, my bike, my run, my strength training, which is seven days a week, I map that to my milestones, which is winning World Championship 2015, which is mapped to my blaze, which is set an example of an elite athlete with a disability who's on par for sighted able-bodied athletes. And what this does is, first of all, it makes my motivation my own accountability. So if I'm ever feeling unmotivated, it's within my control to reinvigorate my motivation by reminding myself, why do I care about this? And more importantly, every single thing I do is infused with a a reason for why am I doing this. I have to get up and catch the bus at 5.30 to get to swim practice by 6. I'm going to swim, swim for an hour and a half. I might swim again later that day. I'm going to do an hour and a half bike ride. I'm going to run at the track with my coach. I'm going to do strength training. That's all in one day. And it's really hard to maintain drive unless you have it so clearly mapped out why this is important to you. So what I believe is different about my goal achievement strategy is that you're taking motivation and making it your own accountability. And more importantly, you're infusing your everyday activity with your motivation. So I'm giving it 100% all day, every day because I never question why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's never mundane. It's never routine. I'm never checking out a checklist box. Um, and the other thing is, I, you know, I've read a lot of goal achievement books, and I've a lot of the feedback I've heard also from other people is you read a book and your patterns change for six weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months. And um, really by mapping it to something you honestly care about, I'm still going to care about that in six weeks. I'm still going to care about that in two months. I'm going to care about that in a year and two years. So in terms of, of being able to maintain motivation over time, um, it really kind of answers that question by infusing it with something that you will always care about, you will never not care about. I love it. Um, the, the other, I love that so much, and, and after I read your book, I've actually been talking to people about it, and the other thing that I was struck by is, 
your practice of being free of limitations. Um, so what you might think is, well, I could, I could reach... I could reach this far, and you you have a bigger way of looking at it. Can you describe that a little bit? Absolutely, yeah. I think, well, one thing that I like to really remind people and remind myself every day is that this type of big transformation or big change does not happen overnight. So you kind of have to practice the baby steps. So when I practice being free of limitations, with every decision I make, I kind of think about it in terms of, you know, if this were an ideal world, what would be possible? And then sort of reverse engineer it with like, okay, if this is in my ideal world, in my ideal world, this is how it would go. Let's figure out how to make that happen. Now, a good example of this would be um, my competitors have a better racing cycle than I have. So there's two ways you could look at it. Everybody I asked about what kind of bike I should get, they were all talking to me about what's your budget, what's your budget, what's your budget. And I was looking at them like, that's not how we're going to do this. I need you to help me figure out what's the best bike in the world. That's going to determine the budget, and then I'm going to get the money. So what I did was I contacted all the various, you know, bike shops and really operating free of limitation, free of constraint, and said, okay, what's the bike that I need? And actually, once we figured it out, I was able to get my the company I previously worked for, Mazito, to sponsor me for the bike, you know. So once you figure out what do you need in your perfect world, what do you need if you're free of limitations and free of constraints, what's, what would you get then? Then you figure out how to make that happen. And, um, you know, I've been able to open a lot of doors by practicing being free of limitations. Now, I'm not going to say don't jump off any cliffs, you know, practice it, pick some small examples, you know, pick some some things that are kind of reachable to get the hang of it and get the practice of, you know, what would I, how would I answer this problem in a perfect world, reverse engineer it, figure out how to get the resources once you figure out the perfect solution. And I think that's going to help you in a couple ways. One, you're going to, you know, I never in a million years thought I would get I would be able to buy the bike that I'm going to be able to purchase with the help of Mazito. But secondly, um, it also saves you the pain of settling. You know, if you settle for something lesser, you're locked into that now. So, for example, if I had purchased the bike that I could afford, I'd be locked into using that bike. And now that money I had, I couldn't apply to other resources. Or, I mean, you're better off spending $10,000 and getting the right bike spending $6,000 and getting a bike that's not going to do the job, you know. So sometimes if you settle, you're now locked in to something that isn't going to help you. So I think it's, you know, really practicing being free of constraints and free of limitations and, and not settling, just, you know, figure out how to get what is the right solution. Um, I love that, and I think very few people do it. I think it's, it's so beautiful. And um, it's just so wonderful to talk to you that we're we're running out of time, but I want to finish by asking you, what does it mean to run the root line? Yeah, so running the root line is a, a phrase I borrowed from marathon running. And in marathon running, what it, what it really means is, you know, when you're taking a curve, you want to cut the curve as tightly as possible such that you aren't running extra distance. If you take a turn wide, you're adding, you're adding mileage you don't need to add. So in the way I borrow or adapt that phrase is you want to do what's necessary to accomplish your goal but you don't want to spin your wheels. You don't want to spin your cycles. You know, for example, as an athlete, um, if I spend an hour practicing uh, cycling, that will help me advance as an athlete. That's part of the root line. If I spend an hour practicing kickboxing, sure, that's general fitness, but it's not specific to the task at hand. And if it's not specific to the task at hand, then it's probably just a waste of resources. And that you can be a very busy person who doesn't get anything done. 
So when I say abiding the root line, what I'm really saying is keep your efforts focused on what is required, you know, to the minimal amount of work to get the job done. And that's following the root line and marathon running. You want to run that race with the least amount of distance possible. So really it's a matter of like helping yourself, set yourself up for success by focusing your efforts on the exact tasks that are required, but nothing tangential or extraneous that is just going to waste cycles. Patricia, I so appreciate your um, doing this interview and helping all the women that are listening and helping the people who have physical handicaps to be inspired and encouraged that they can overcome those in some pretty exciting ways. And um, I highly recommend reading your book because it it has more wonderful advice like you've been giving us. That's Blind Ambition by Patricia Walsh. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sabrina. I've, I've loved being on the show. And to all your listeners, you know, if, you, if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I love being a part of helping others achieve their goals, and I love knowing what people are thinking about. So, you know, by all means, my website is blindambitionspeaking.com, and I would love to hear from you. And I, you know, hope that all your listeners know that I'm cheering for them and excited to see what they do with their own blind ambitions. Beautiful. Thanks again. Thank you. What have been the obstacles you've overcome? We'd love to hear your challenges, opinions, and breakthroughs. Please visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com and post your comments at the bottom of the show. And will you do me a favor? Please share Women's Leadership Success and the blog with your friends and associates. And thanks for listening. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brom, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.